Welcome to Fill to Flourish with Luke and Lauren, where emotional health takes a stage and your story matters. Hey everyone, we're back with another episode. Uh, We're excited to share more content on our Conversations About Race series. We have two friends of ours on today, and we're going to tell you a little bit about them first, and then we'll bring them on. So Daniel uh, is one of our friends we have on today. We've been friends for over a decade. We started working together in the emergency department of a hospital when I was a brand new nurse and he was such a good friend. You were just a little baby. I was, I would talk about naive. (laughs) I didn't know anything about what was about to happen in that ER. But yeah, we, we had really awesome talks and great connections. So we've kept in touch through the years and he's coming on today with his wonderful fiance, Jay. Yes. New fiance. Yeah, brand new. We're so excited. To, we get to be the first people to podcast with them. As, as an engaged couple. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> they're on so many podcasts. Uh, Daniel's a South Carolina native. He's a graduate of Limestone University and he is a Cowboys fan pretty intense about that I think (laughs) and then Jade so Daniel's 35 Jade is 34 she has a bachelor's in journalism and a master's in management leadership from Southern Wesleyan University she is 17 year old survivor of lupus me and Jade have that in common both been battling chronic illness for years and she um, she's just brilliant about how she makes her way through the world with such a challenge physically. She founded an organization called Crowning Lupus. Uh, the mission of this organization is to ensure that men and women living with lupus avoid health disparities through education, finance, and advocacy across South Carolina and parts of Georgia. Um, this is just amazing. She started this in 2013, I think. Yeah, Jade's just a powerhouse, and she loves tailgating. This is a little fun side of her. Can't even imagine, but looks fun in the movies. Also a big Cowboys fan. Yeah, Cowboys. So at least they don't have that conflict going into marriage. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Sundays can be peaceful, at least. (laughs) So welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you for having us. (laughs) We're so glad you're here, and we're able to work it out across the ocean yes definitely definitely yeah we are definitely glad to be here with y'all today Mm. thanks daniel it's good to see you yeah just as you were introducing daniel and jade i was just reminiscing of all the nights you would come home and like man i had this great conversation with this guy named daniel he is such an awesome guy just we always it was a quiet night and got to chat with daniel and yeah night shift oh you want to be with good people in night shift seriously I'm sure it was good conversation. <laughs> Always. Always. Yes. We were just amazed that Daniel stayed our stayed your friends for all those years. Yeah, we were just talking off air um, that many, many years ago when we first met, Daniel was just a really gracious friend and we had very different lives and very different belief systems. I don't even know if that's the right verbiage, but yeah, Daniel just uh, was so gracious with me as I probably wasn't the most safe friend for him, but I'm really thankful for that. And I'm thankful for all the the years and the the babies we've had and the moves we've had, just that 
we've been able to keep in touch here and there. It's it's meant a lot to us. Yeah, our kids still talk about the cake that he brought us when we were in <laughs> South Carolina last time. <laughs> he knows how to get in with good with kids, right? Let me tell you, you know, it definitely um, has been a pleasure, you know, being y'all friend, you know, for the past 10, I guess, 12 years, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah. Uh, so we did meet at the hospital first, Lauren, and um, I think we met when you were pregnant with your first child. Oh, wow. And, you know, it. it's, uh, when we first met, I remember, you know, you walking past me and not speaking. And wow. so, so uh, we have definitely come a long way, mm. you know, and I have, uh, I have successfully turned you into a liberal. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, you're hilarious. That's so interesting. So though. That's, that's over 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. Lucas is 13 and a half. So I was pregnant. That's almost 14 years. That's so, that's, I'm glad you said that because that's like, that's a good segue actually into what we're going to talk about. So Daniel and Jade are both black Americans, African Americans. Um, Daniel's very tall and carries a strong presence. And I'm guessing with um, the very white neighborhood I grew up in, lack of diversity in my life across the board, my entire childhood. Then I moved to South Carolina, which we were super excited. We're like, oh, we get to be around not just white people. We were excited about that, but that didn't mean we knew how to navigate those waters and and actually be a decent person in the middle of it. But <laughs> I'm imagining you, I mean, I don't remember feeling this, but I'm imagining and putting myself in that 20 year old position, you were representative of stereotypes that I had been fed through media and relationships mm -hmm. all my life. And I wasn't sure. And that's, I'm so glad I didn't miss out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I could definitely tell, you know, that, that, you know, you definitely didn't grow up around much black people. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about that and my thoughts were correct. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but I was always brought up to always be friendly to people, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And so even though, you know, we thought differently on, politics and religion or whatever, I actually did see the good person inside you, you know, and that's why I kept on talking to you. And then when we had our first disagreement and, you know, you thought that we wouldn't be friends anymore or whatever, mm -hmm. I mean, I was like, you know, it's a disagreement. So what? I mean, let's just move on. <laughs> Which is such a picture of the world I was coming from of polarization and we just have to separate if we don't see eye to eye on every single thing that was literally what I was brought up in yeah. and the world you're brought up in is no we we make it work because right. a we've learned to be better people with that honestly and b right. we have to right if, you, if yes. you live in a majority white world you can't just cut every single relationship off. Could you tell us a little bit about how that works? Um, so growing up, I was big on um, learning about race relations in America. I was big on history. And I used to always read about Black history. And, um, you know, 
my favorite person of, of 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 that time period, I guess, was was um Dr. King. And I have read his book before, and I've read so many articles. Mm-hmm. And you know, just his teachings, it just taught me to want to learn about other races mm-hmm. and different people. And then you know, just the way that 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 I was brought up, you know, that it doesn't matter if we argue or if we have a disagreement or whatever, we won't learn anything about each other if we don't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And that's the main thing with me, you know. I wanted to learn more about you and your family mm-hmm. and maybe see, you know, if something will rub off on you or whatever. Also, you know, I wanted to get to the root cause of like, you know, why didn't you speak to me the first time you saw me? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, were you afraid of this big black guy or something or, you know, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I get that a lot with other white people, you know, mm-hmm. they'll they'll walk past and not speak. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, I, I always wonder, you know, why. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, it Jim. brings up a good idea, though, because you desire to want to learn more. Um, and I think that's a disconnect between all races. Um most individuals, even if they're brought up to, you can, like, we can, we can say, assume that most individuals, they grow up in a household that says, hey, respect diversity, respect different people who think differently from you, who look differently from you. Um, But ultimately, as you start venturing off in the world, um, it becomes more of, okay, I might've been taught that, but what was I shown? Because whatever I was shown, that's going to be what I, you know, the actions that I produce in the world, you know what I mean? Like, even if you were teaching me, okay, I need to be diverse. I need to learn about diversity. But if I saw you visually avoiding conversations, avoiding interactions, then that is what I'm going to produce. You desired, you know, you were taught that, but you also desired, you had a, a, a hunger to learn other cultures, other races. Um, and so I think, you know, that's probably, you know, what produced the beautiful relationship that you guys have now. Unfortunately, most people, even if they're brought up to learn diversity, if they don't visually see it and they don't have that underlying hunger to actually learn it for themselves, then it just doesn't happen. Absolutely. As you're just sharing that, I was reminded of some advice that we got when we adopted our, mm-hmm. our, our youngest who's biracial, we were talking about how we're, we got a, like a book or some, we we're going to get some books or toys that were <laughs> not just white. And a friend of ours was like, well, everybody should do that. Everybody should have books and toys about other races that represent other races. Like Regardless if they adopt. And it was huh. like such a novel idea. I mean, truly like jaw on the floor moment. But when I look back on it, I'm like, that is ridiculous. That is basic. But that just exemplifies what we're told is diversity is great. But what we were shown was there there is no diversity. Right. Mm -hmm. There is no honoring of diversity, seeking out diverse relationships. This just wasn't a reality. You know, I I remember. uh, It's weird that you brought up the toy. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Jay. 
No, go ahead. <laughs> fight, so, fight, you know, fight. this sounds kind of simple right here, though, but, you know, I remember uh, going um, Christmas shopping for my sister uh, when I was about maybe eight years old. I went uh, with my mom, and, you know, it, it wasn't no any uh, black Barbie dolls back then. And, you know, I noticed that, that all of my sister's doll babies were, were white. Now, you know, she was only, you know, two or three years old. So, you know, she didn't care. But at the time, you know, even at eight years old, I noticed that still. And, you know, that lack of diversity back then, I mean, it is in some cases, it's still happening now. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Right. But, you know, we have definitely, you know, come a long way since then. Um, I want to say uh, when you were talking about the toys, ironically enough. So, you know how you said um, you would think like buy diverse toys for your children. Yeah. You know, and then like for from my perspective, growing up, all you saw was one ethnicity of toys. Like most little girls, I was in the Barbies. Um, Barbies was like my thing. I literally had a whole neighborhood and community of Barbies from Dreamhouse to Corvette to the minivan to Skipper to Kelly. Like I literally lived and breathed Barbie. Um, but of course, when I was growing up, even though I was taught diversity, I had to learn really quickly like, mom, well, Barbie doesn't look like me. Why doesn't she look like me? You know, and we had to find. So then growing up as a little black girl, you're thrown specifically black toys and little, you know, little baby dolls and stuff that are black because on TV and in most stores, all you see is other ethnicities, majority white, but that's pretty much all you see. So then it's like, you have your parents like, okay, well, I'm teaching them diversity, but they're not really seeing it. So now I got to put in extra effort to find this little black Barbie or this little baby doll so that what I'm teaching them, they can see, no, it's there. It's just as important. I remember one time, I can't remember what year this was, but my mother had to go to like three different Kmarts to find my sister that that black baby doll that my aunt said that she saw in the store so you know I'm wondering if those types of moments as kids are kind of the the first realization like some of the first realizations that you you live in a a white world and you're separate from that in a sense um you know I think I think it it starts there, but it's it's so much bigger because for me, the area that I grew up in, in Aiken, it is a lot of hidden racism. So it's like that thing where you know it exists, but nobody feels comfortable talking about it because you grow up with diverse friends. So it's like it exists among the parents and the kids don't really start seeing like I didn't start really seeing it you know my friends didn't start seeing what was going on until as we got older and then as we got older 
then stuff it went from okay like we play together all the time we're at each other's houses we go camping we're doing girl scouts together and then as you get older middle school and high school you're almost forced to choose like well are you going to hang with your white friends or are you going to hang with your black friends um and it's not you know stated verbally but you know that's the connotation of it like what are you going to do? And so it goes back. I'm sure Daniel's experience was different because, you know, he grew up as a male. And if that's one thing I know, my experience is definitely going to be different from his, you know, because he's a male. Sure. So my first time actually dealing with racism and actually understanding it was when I was six years old and my parents took us trick or treating. Now we went into, uh, different neighborhood you know it was a I guess a white neighborhood or whatever and we knocked on this older lady's door and she looked at us and asked why are you in our neighborhood now I was only six years old but I I understood because you know I always heard my parents talk about you know the 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 white black thing it wasn't that you know they were trying to tell me about race at their at their young age it was just that, you know, that was that that was a part of life. Mm-hmm. And so I knew it then. And, you know, from the age of six to 14, you know, I definitely had some experiences. We had a run in with the police in my neighborhood when I was about 10 years old. Uh, and it got to the point where, you know, I was I was wondering what it was like to be white mm-hmm. and I remember walking around the neighborhood with my friend David and I asked him what do you think it's like to be white and I never forget this because he you know this simple thing that he said changed me you know because my life could have been totally different but I heard him say I don't know and I don't care I'm having too much fun being black. And and, <laughs> and that was when, you know, I stopped wondering what it was like to be white and I just enjoyed, you know, being black. Now, however, I did still want to learn about other people though, but you know, I was that moment I felt proud to be a black man. Wow. How old were you then, Daniel? 14. Okay. I would say that statement that he said literally characterizes you. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Like that, that is absolutely so powerful that in that moment of time, like it's so true that there's moments in life that are so defining and that conversation, because he was able to almost like impart his confidence and pride and like screw it. I'm not going to spend my whole life wanting to be different. And you were able to like absorb that and become, I mean, that there's like, that's such a true picture of you. You are so brilliantly you and it's so attractive. You draw people because you, you, your confidence and your, your appreciation and love of yourself is just such a gift. And that appreciation and love of yourself helps you love people so well. 
and on our, our other episodes, we just talk about like emotional health, mental health, and how we can't give what we don't have. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like you give love so well. And it is so attractive. Like <laughs> your smile, your fun, your personality, just everything that represents Daniel. And you couldn't give that, not that it, you owe people that, uh, but you you give that because of that gift that your friend gave you and you received it, that you wow. love yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. I'll be blessing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that story, though. That is really, really powerful. And, you know, white people might say, well, why can't, why can't everyone who's a minority just do that? Like, Mm. I don't get it. Diversity is beautiful. Blah, blah, blah. Just love yourself. But it's (laughs) not so simple. It's not. And that, that, I think that's what people don't understand. Like, you know, my mom, um, she's always had a diverse group of friends around her, um, which allowed me to have diverse friends. Um, and so even though society kind of tried to step in at times and be like, well, why are you friends with this or that person? Because I saw it with my mom, I knew like, because I want to be like, you can't tell me just because of this or that color, I can't be friends with this or that person. But unfortunately, you're still going to like, everybody is an individual. Um, Everybody's going to behave in in their way, no matter how they grew up, no matter who they're around. So Mm -hmm. even though you may want to give love and share love and share respect and be open to showing that respect, not everybody feels that way. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, sometimes circumstances are the reason behind not everyone being so open to, I want to learn the culture. Even if I, you know, encounter someone that thought differently than me. I mean, perfect example is that most people um, that would have been in you and Daniel's situation and y'all encounter, they probably would not be talking. 10 or 12 years later and that that's just real but because you know he made that conscious decision of no I want to learn you know it happened but unfortunately sometimes people go through so much stuff and so many different circumstances that there may be a part of them that wants to you know when they have that situation be like no I still want to get to learn, know this person. I still want to get to know them because everybody has, everybody's actions is, you know, it came from a root cause of something, whether good or bad. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just those root causes are so deeply invested and embedded in that person that no matter the small piece of them that wants to still be like, no, I still want to know why. I still want to know or you know, get to know that person despite we thinking differently or viewing the world differently, the circumstances just won't allow them or shall I say the fear from past circumstances won't allow them to open up, to even give themselves or that person the opportunity to do so. You mentioned, you know, is is each individual person, you know, and that is so true because all right, so my mother, you know, taught me to love everybody and, you know, be kind to everyone. 
but she does not really care for white people mm-hmm. <laughs> and my grandmother doesn't either and a lot of my family doesn't yeah i chose to not have that type of hate in my heart and definitely not pass it on to my kids mm. you know i mean now they have gotten better over the years but the you know they they are a older generation of course and they dealt with different things than i did yeah so it's different so you know i always tell this uh to um jay all the time you know my family goes well has generational curses and that's one of them and so you know jay always tells me to break it stop Mm -hmm. it right now Mm -hmm. I appreciate you sharing that because it's really vulnerable to share with an audience that has a lot of white people listening, that aspect. I think it's so important to talk about in light of that, talk about generational trauma and the impact, the very real impact that that has had on families and generations of black Americans since the beginning. I mean, it, it literally, is rooted so far back. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Like, I appreciate Daniel's almost self-sacrificing of it's a generational curse. But that generational curse was something that was given to you guys. Yeah. To your family. Like it's a generational trauma. And anybody who has trauma is going to have an aversion to the thing or people that have traumatized them. And maybe a, a transition of uh, talking maybe a little bit about generational trauma out doing a, a training. Uh, Gabor Mate was doing the training and he was talking about, he, he'd been researching trauma for 30 years and he was talking about generational trauma and the effects it has physically, genetically, affects the sperm, affects the gestation of the baby while it's in the mother's womb. It's literally passed on. It's, it's literally the trauma experience is passed on from generation to generation, not just like, oh, I'm going to teach it or live out of it. It's genetically effects and wires the brain. I mean, obviously our brain is, has lots of plasticity, so it can change, but it still wires it and gives it a, a hard wiring foundation of those experiences. When we have those experiences, we're put into a protective mechanism. Our brains go into a protective mechanism of find safety, protect yourself. And so... Mm-hmm. I just want to like sit there for a second as you say that, and like you said, we have a lot of white listeners. It's not just a choice of like, oh, well, just Daniel did it. Just start loving people. <laughs> like Daniel could only do it because of what his family, the work that his family did for generations that have also given him even the brain wiring. Right. And the work to push through and be activists and make it so that at least it was you know, more equal so that Daniel was in a generation where he even had the opportunity. He wasn't being. Right. It was like his family generation, like his family, but that whole, with the whole generation and generations past have all experienced that trauma to put you in a position to have maybe even the option. So to give you an example of, uh, of a generational trauma, let me tell y'all this story here. So I got a bunch of male cousins that are around about my age. And uh, 
all of us witnessed our dads being abusive to our moms. Some were physical, some were verbal. Now, my my uh, real dad, uh, I didn't grow up in the same house as him, but I knew that he was very ver- verbally abusive to women. However, my stepdad, he abused my mom physically. My cousins, all of their dads, so basically all my uncles, verbally abused their wives and their girlfriends, uh, some physical. And so we witnessed that, you know, coming up. And growing up, we found out, you know, that our granddad did the same thing to our grandmother. Now, this is my dad's side of the family, you know. So my grandmother dealt with that, and our our dads saw that. They saw my granddad, you know, beating and cussing out my grandmother. And my granddad saw that from his dad. And that's a generational trauma. It probably, you know, goes back to the slavery days, maybe. I don't know. But as I got older, you know, I realized that it was a certain hidden anger in me. And now I've never hit a woman, never cussed that woman before, but you know, I have gotten mad before and I'll like, I'll get so upset that I'll punch the wall or something, you know, or I'll, I'll have to walk out and just, I don't know, you know, like cussing the air. Some of my cousins, now, some of them do that as well because we talk about it. But unfortunately, some of them are very verbally abusive to their wives or girlfriends, and others are physically abusive. And it's that generational curse and trauma that keeps on going down the line. And me and a few, well, I don't know, me and I guess two other cousins of mine, you know, we we talk about it often. And, you know, we are determined to kill that generational curse, you know, to not let it pass to our kids. You know, it's things like that amongst other things, you know, that I guess, I mean, not just black people, you know, deal with that, of course, but, you know, everyone, you know, everyone has to break whatever generational curses are in their families. If Fail to Flourish has encouraged you on your emotional health journey, please share our content with social media and those that you love. It truly is such a privilege to watch what we've been creating be a help to so many. Also, we understand there are so many incredible opportunities for giving, but we would like to ask if you would consider a small monthly gift to help us keep producing content. There's actually a link in the description of every single episode for super easy giving, and we would so appreciate your consideration in this way. Please continue enjoying the podcast as it is created especially for you.
And that's about creating a space, you know, like you have to have the vulnerability and be open to creating that space to allow that to happen. Because of course, like you said, um, you know, some listeners will say, oh, it's just as easy as, oh, I'm just going to love someone despite it all. But you have to create a space within yourself that allows you to do so. Because we all, we all have some type of bias within us, you know, uh, conscious or unconscious, we all have some type of bias. It takes sometimes different situations that bring that, you know, that surface those biases so that you can see, okay, am I, is this going to be a defining moment where I create that space of opportunity to learn and grow? Or is this going to be that moment that I'm just not ready to grow? Not saying that I don't want to, but I'm just not ready to face that trauma that I previously faced to work through it. Because everybody is at a different stage situation. Everybody is at a different, you know, phase in their life, whether it's generational or things that they've just faced through different circumstances of their life. And so, you know, it also comes to, okay, creating that space, you know what I mean? You know, like if you don't give a child an opportunity to feel like, okay, I can talk about my experience. I can talk about my pain and hurt and we can work through this. And I I hear you. I'm not just, oh, I'm listening, but I'm not really listening. I'm hearing you. I'm understanding you. Now let's figure out the ways to cope through the, you know, through that trauma so that we can move forward. Unfortunately, you find a lot of individuals, and this is not just generational, you find a lot of individuals that have faced those traumas and have never been given the opportunity to have a space to talk about those traumas and to speak through it. And if you've never been given that space to talk about it and to speak through it, how can you heal? How can you move forward? There are some the courage to say, no, I'm going to think different. I'm going to be different. I'm going to act different. Daniel made a choice. He chose to think different and act different despite things that he's seen, um, you know, things that, you know, his ancestry might've went through in the past, but others sometimes, you know, they don't for whatever reason, you know, they don't, or they're just not given that opportunity. If you don't feel safe to, to do it, how can you, you know, grow through it? How can you get through it? And so it's almost a loaded question because yeah, there is generational trauma and there's traumas, But depending on the situation, depending on the circumstances, it's so many other things that you have to kind of look into to see like, okay, there's this trauma. Why hasn't it been addressed? Mm -hmm. Or has it been addressed and the person just overlooked it? There's so many other different aspects that people are afraid to talk about Mm -hmm. to start moving forward with a different mindset. So good. I I have a follow-up question with that, Jade. Mm -hmm. So appreciate your insight. I'm wondering, so we've done a lot of emotional health stuff for ourselves and our own stories and our own specific um, traumatic relationships and things, but the idea of safety, like we mentioned, is 
so huge to being able to move forward. Like, okay, I finally put boundaries up. I've established safety. My body can finally feel, start to sink into that safety. And now I can move forward and heal. So my question for African-Americans or other minority groups in America, what about the fact that there isn't safety across the board for y'all? Like there isn't, you can't wake up and say, well, everyone I see today as I go out and about in the world is, has done work <laughs> and isn't, isn't acting out of their biases or their prejudice or racism. And I, I'm not gonna ever hear any type of negative language, microaggressions. I'm not gonna see looks. I'm not gonna see people walk past me quickly. I'm not gonna experience any of that now. So I'm safe and I can heal. How do you heal? or work towards healing, you know, and bettering your yourself emotionally, mentally, when that's just not a reality in America yet? Prayer, mm-hmm. Pray, you know, prayer, you know, for me and, you know, not to get religious, but it is, nobody's perfect. Um, there are so many emotions that you go through on the job, everywhere, where you you're not, you're going to be out of your safety net. But my safety comes in the fact of, I know that every step I take is guided by God. Every decision I make is guided by God. And even when I fall off, I know he's still keeping me for a reason and a purpose. So when I walk out of my safety net, let's say my safety net of the walls of my house, when I walk out of the safety net of the walls of my house, I am you know, rooted and footed in God's word and his protection. So now it becomes, I'm going to make a conscious decision that no matter what bias I face, I'm not going to step out of myself to make you comfortable just because you're uncomfortable with seeing me. I know who I am and my safety is rooted in him. Mm -hmm. So I have to make the comment, regardless of, how much, you know, how many emotions I, because let's be honest, when you face prejudice, when you face things that you just know are not right, or, you know, like if I wasn't black, I probably wouldn't be dealing with this. I probably wouldn't be having this conversation if I wasn't black. When you face that, it is very easy to be like, oh, I want to, you know, say something back. But then, you know, I think for me, my parents, they, they taught me to be a strong, independent thinker. They taught me to embrace the woman that I am, the young lady that I was growing up. They taught me to be the best version I could of myself. So being grounded in God's word and then knowing who I am, it was like, no matter the, unbi- you know, the biases that I faced, no matter the prejudices that I faced, was I going to step out of my character to address others or was it appropriate to step out of my character to address others who didn't make me feel safe Mm. was that even worth my time is it worth my time and that's you know depending on a case-by-case situation because there are times where you're going to face someone or a situation where okay this needs to be addressed And then there's times where you have to make the decision, is it worth it? 
Mm. Yes or no. So I think for me, the safety comes in. I know who I am. I know who I serve. And that's the mindset that I carry when I walk out of the safety net that is my house. But it, it's finding that, you know, it's it's finding and really the defining it. Because most people don't think about what is my safety? You know, your safety could be your religion. Your safety could be your family. But people, a lot of people don't think about, well, if I'm separated from my family, what is my safety? What do I have to hone into to make sure that I'm still me and that I'm still protected? Do I still feel protected when I'm not with my family? You know what I mean? It's A lot of people don't take the time to to think about that. So, I, you know, for me, I think my safety just comes through my religious beliefs and recognizing who I am. But I think it's different for every person. Like, Daniel, what do you think for you and your experiences? As far as safety goes like that, you know, I I tend to think of the the one person at a time method. And what I mean by that is, I know for a fact, whether it's me or somebody 5,000 miles away, there is somebody talking to somebody else to try to get them to understand them. And that's the one person that is being changed right then and there. I know that's happening. And so that's the way I think on it. You know, for example, Lauren and I, you know, we talked. Her mindset changed. How many other people talked that day? Mm. It's happening. You know, it's less racism, you know, now than it was 200 years ago. I mean, unfortunately, it still exists and will probably always will exist, but it's less of it. And that's how I get through this life in America or, you know, this life on earth. So what I'm hearing you guys both say is you have to find, there's a point where you have to find safety within yourself. You, you, can't, you can't look for other people, find safety, you can't other places, other things, hope in shifts of society or culture, but uh, this is where I find safety. This is where, this is where I'm going to stay grounded and then take it one day at a time. All right. I'm, I'm going to jump into that, though, yeah. and challenge that a little bit, because actually Daniel did say that the, the reality of the shifts happening does bring some sense of, okay, we, we are moving forward. There's less and less people that are going to be a threat to, to my people or to my children or to myself. myself. And I think different personalities. I mean, that makes perfect sense that, Absolutely. that you, you find assurances in that. And I think it's such a good reminder to Luke and I of why it's so important for us to do this inner work for ourselves and, and dismantle these constructs that we've had our whole life is because it's literally directly impacting other human beings, safety, whether it's physical safety, but, but, but relational safety and in, in the world. And to hear right. you say that, wow. Yeah. It's really powerful. It is because that's not something we've ever had to think about. No. Like I've never left my house and said, am I going to be safe today? Am I going to experience racism today? 
am I going to not get this job today? Am I going to not be accepted in this college application? Am I going to be was, looked at when the dad sees me come for the date? Like just things we've never, ever, ever, ever thought. Let me tell you, I, I um, so <laughs> my life would definitely be on a whole nother side right now. I mean, I have been pulled over, I think, 11 or 12 times, probably. Uh, I have been followed around the store three different times. I mean, called the N-word to my face twice. You know, just stuff like that. But, you know, just going back to the individualism, you know, you each individual has, has to handle their situation differently. You know, right. my... Some of my family members probably, well, definitely would have handled that, those things way differently than me. Yeah. You know, just because we're individual people. Right. But you know, something that I thought about is that, you know, like you, Daniel, you mentioned you were followed in the store, right? Um, mm -hmm. And something that your audience, you know, the audience should think about is that in, uh, in the Black culture, at a young age, you're already taught that you might be followed in a store and you're taught how to handle that situation. I don't know, guys will be able to answer this, but I don't know if in your household, if you were taught how to think about how it was going to make the other race feel by actions such as those. You know, like we're taught this may happen. And this is why you denied that was one person that did you. You don't hold that against a whole culture for what happened in that situation. But I, I'm wondering, you know, in your households, were you ever taught like, you know, well, if a friend or even if it was your parent did that to, you know, a Black child, how would that make them feel? So this is something that you need to think about when you get older, if you're ever put in a situation like that. Like mm -hmm. it's a, con you know, it's more like in a Black household, that's a conversation that it's not a matter of if it's going to be had, it's a matter of when is the appropriate time to have it. In a white household, is that the same Thing, or is it just like we don't even have conversations about this because then that's another thing to get the mind going of maybe that's something that we should start thinking about it's almost like how can you understand another culture if you don't try to start thinking about different instances that that culture faces mm -hmm. like it's I'm pretty sure a friend of mine who, you know, who's a white female and she's sweetest person ever, but she was approached and called racist and she's far from it. But she asked me, she was like, you know, most people, they're always like, they'll ask you like, um, is this a conversation you had? But nobody ever sits there and asks me like, how did I feel? But she was taught to think from the other side are those conversations that you can remember that you had growing up in your younger years or was it something like through having different conversations as you got older that you started thinking about 
literally never ever thought about how anyone's life was apart from whiteness ever that was never even a thought and so i think that's why a lot of uh, white people when they're adults if they decide to go down the road of examining whiteness and what it is to be white what it is to not be white it's so shocking dude it's like it's like how could this be possible that this whole world exists that I had no insight like I was never aware of I mean it really it's it's shocking. So all, all that to say is, no, we did not experience that ever. Um, and the little moments that could have brought, you know, like watching Family Matters, where they do the, the racially racial profiling episode with Eddie. It's like those moments were there and we watched all that, but we never had an adult guide us through. Let's talk about that after the episode. And let's let's think about what that would feel like. And let's think about our friends. I mean, those because our parents hadn't gone through that journey themselves, they were completely unable to offer that to us. And so they didn't even exist. Those thoughts didn't even exist until well into adulthood because of stories of finally listening to people's stories and validating people's stories, not, not needing to like take apart people's stories or say, well, what about this? Or oh, that's the race card or all the other things that we did see modeled, like you said earlier, it's what you see modeled. We finally stopped doing that. And it was like a whole nother world yeah. was open that we just had no insight into. I would echo that, no conversations. Like we were taught to love people, to care for people, but not model what that looks like. Right. We modeled opposite of what that looks like in a lot of ways devaluing their experience, the experience or a story, minimizing it, or instead of taking a story of like, of looking at that, take another story and saying they responded wrongly. So that's why we need to, why, why the race card is so bad or why racism is not true or why they deserve this. Or it was just like, I would say to the extent that black children are taught these things, white children are taught them too, but not the right things. Right. Unless you're an intentional white family, like a white family that is intentional about sharing um, people's stories and truth, I would say just like you guys were had the conversation about police, the conversations about what happens when someone calls you the N-word, what happened, like all of those things were part of your childhood. I would say all of, of whiteness was part of our childhood just as much and that's why we're at where we're at today right because there's all of these white kids that just they they've been taught a certain way and it's both implicit and explicit yeah the explicit maybe not be as direct right but no. the implicit is a lot more consistent yes so long answer to your question yeah. is no never had a conversation of how would it feel like to be a minority in America, a black person in America, a black man in America? Never challenged. Thankfully, we yeah. have those conversations with and, our kids. Mm -hmm. And we do often. And see, and then on the other hand, you know, there are some black households who, instead of them being taught like, okay, well, this or that may happen, 
And this is why you don't need to let this define you, but to make a better decision. There's some households that still teach to hate because they haven't, you know, healed from whatever they experienced. Sure. So now they're passing that down to their ch- children. And of course, their children, you know, unless they make the conscious decision to know I want to think different, I want to handle these situations differently, they're going to pass it down. And so it just, you know, it just becomes like a whole big thing where you could literally talk about so many what if avenues into it. But, you know, I think just by starting the conversation, it's a start. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? It, it's a start. You know, I don't know if there will ever be a finish, but it's definitely a start. Yeah. So, Jade, thank you for just sharing that aspect of the experience of a, a Black family kind of passing on that fear. And I just want to ask a question or just invite your perspective, because our perspective engaging with whiteness is that can be a, a tool that a lot of people use that like, see, Black people, minorities, African-Americans, they're just as much responsible for the divide as white people. And so if they could just meet us halfway, this wouldn't be a problem. Um, so I, I don't know if that's what you meant, but uh, what, what do you think about that? So it's not necessarily that Black families are trying to teach their children um, hate or these hate behaviors. It is that it's a mechanism to protect them from the fear that they experienced in those traumas when they experienced them. So if you think about it, every parent wants to protect their child. It's, it's natural. You want to protect your child from hurt and from harm. So when we say these traumas are passed down, it's not necessarily that you're passing hate down to your child. It's this is the hurt and the pain that I experienced in this situation. And so I want to protect you by explaining the trauma that I experienced to you to prepare you for it, not knowing if you're going to face it or not, because you may not face it, but in the chance that you do face it, here are some tools. But now you have a situation of you don't even realize, okay, I just planted this seed of trauma in my child. So they may be too young to understand it now, but as they grow older, if the situation surfaces, now you have a a seed that has just sprouted and it becomes, you're going to go right back to that situation that your parent tried to explain. And then as Daniel said, I made the choice. So now it is, okay, is this child going to make the decision to use this moment as an educational moment to learn and say, hey, I'm going to be positive. I'm going to be better. Or are they going to use this moment to be like, no, my mom and dad already explained this fear of what happened to them. I don't want this to happen to me. So I'm going to protect myself and I'm going to back away. Mm. And so you really don't know. So it's not that that they're passing on to their children um, tools of hate or uh, tools of trauma. It's they're passing on 
a fear of, I want to protect my child from what could potentially happen to them mentally and physically that happened to me. I want to give them the tools to prepare them. So you don't see it as I'm passing trauma down to my child. You see it as I'm passing on a resource to protect them because I want to do everything I can as a parent to make sure they're okay. And then the question surfaces of how do you explain these situations? Like, you know, you you can be criticized for trying to teach your child these traumas that you went through in the hopes that they, you know, don't experience them or they they take a learning opportunity if it surfaces in their life. How do you convert, you know, convey this information to them without scaring them, you know, without putting trauma in them? How do I explain, okay, well, this situation could happen. Um, this scenario could happen. How do I give those situations or present those situations to them without it being a traumatic moment? So it's not that they're passing down intentionally. They're passing down fear from circumstances that they faced or that not necessarily they're passing down fear. It's more so I want to protect you, so I'm going to pass down stories that I've faced so that I can give you different tools because maybe I didn't face it the right way when I was your age. But now that I know better or now that I feel a lot better given this lesson that I learned, I want to give you an opportunity to be able to do differently or think differently than I did when it happened to me. Well, well said. Thank you for that clarification. That was very helpful. And I think hearing that, what stirs up to me is the idea of like safety. As white people, we can also do our own work so that we can be safe people. So we can limit those traumatic experiences for minorities Mm -hmm. so that we don't, when a a person of color responds out of that trauma, we see the trauma. Yeah. We see the fear response. The 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 sympathetic nervous system activating and saying, oh, I need to protect myself. Not, oh, no, see, told you. They're just angry people. Yeah, because oftentimes those trauma those trauma, those traumatic responses are taken as oh gosh, they're being, you know, they're being offensive to me or, oh, they're yelling at me or they're trying to start a a fight with me. And it's not that they're just speaking from fear. They're, you know, like it's that fight or flight. Um, And so they're, they're speaking out of that trauma. It's not that they're, you know, trying to target, but sometimes, you know, it's just taken that way. Perfect example. Like, okay, for me, I have a deep and raspy voice. So when I get into a conversation, whether it whether the person is black, white, whatever race, because my voice is deep and, you know, I'm known to, I you know, I speak firmly on what I believe um, and I speak assertively, you know, in my voice. I was taught to speak, you know, that way. But when you get into a heated conversation, some people can take it as, OK, we're in a heated conversation. We think differently, but that's OK. It's yeah. just. We think that we can agree to disagree and we can move forward. Others say, oh, here's a black girl. 
that's got an attitude and mad and yelling and mm. just cut not okay no she's just as strong in her opinion as I am in mine and we're gonna agree to disagree and move forward but continue the conversation right and and that you know and that's that's thing it's like it's almost like I pose the question you know it's gonna take someone like you guys have taken on the reins to start a conversation the problem is is that many don't have that mindset it's you don't think like I think so conversation over (laughs) but it takes a conversation it takes those uncomfortable conversations and they're not meant to make anyone like feel uncomfortable but it's like I can't understand you if I don't talk to you. Right. And I can't, you know, empathize with you if I don't know you, you know, like if you've never been taught different diversities and to understand and embrace them, if you've never been taught that and I'm so in my way that I'm not open into hearing that, then how are we going to move forward? Yes. If I thought to embrace it, you know, and just cut off, then how are you going to, you know what I mean? Like, you'll never understand my perspective if you're not even willing to hear what I have to say. Mm-hmm. You ha- you have to be open to that the same way that I have to be open to hearing what you have, what you have to say. And it starts by a conversation. Mm-hmm. It starts by that. Yes. So good. Before we wrap up, I thank you so much, Jade. I wanted to kind of piggyback off of that and ask you, Daniel, the fear element and that that fear response and kind of that that piece. How do you feel like that plays into police brutality and how African-American, especially men, darker men, meaning like not just African-American, but anyone who's a person of color who's darker, who may come up against engagement with the police that does not go well can you just share from us or from your perspective to us like what happens when you see yourself getting pulled over like what happens in your body and what you have to do to avoid just straight up panic as I said earlier you know I've been pulled over at least 10 12 times or whatever and um now I will admit you know about five of those times, I was definitely speeding. So, <laughs> uh, uh, but the other times though, it, it was definitely, you know, just some, you know, BS. But um, it's like a feeling of, so I've heard my friends tell it differently or whatever, you know, uh, for some of them it's, it's panic or it's our ah, hell, you know. But for me, it's like, you know, I ain't doing nothing wrong, so I'm gonna be okay. You know, I mean, but that's just how I am with life in general. Mm-hmm. But it took me a while to get to that place. So my first time getting pulled over, I was like, oh hell, what's about to happen? What did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember he said that I'd use a turn signal. You know, so, you know, as a as a child, this is crazy, but as a child, you know, when you, we are taught that when you have a 
have an encounter with the police to be respectful, keep your hands visible, basically just don't be a dumbass. And that's what I did. You know, he walked up to the car. I already had my license and my insurance in my hands and my hands were on the steering wheel. And I sat there, you know, yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, sir. I mean, to be honest, it's a bit, it's a bit demeaning in a certain way, you know, because it's like you literally have to, I don't know. Um, yeah, you literally have to submit to his officer and, you know, just to keep him from, just to keep that situation from overblowing, Yeah, you know, because if you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, it, it could cost you. And so, yeah, you know, I, I used to panic. I don't anymore because I'm older and, you know, I know not to do wrong things or whatnot, but it is a bit demeaning though, you know, because of how submissive you basically have to be. Mm-hmm. And I do remember, so I was driving with this, uh, what I was riding in a car with a white friend of mine. I, this is, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. And he got pulled over. And when I tell you, he made a scene. And that cop was so polite to him still. He made a scene. And I was like, dude, you got to be kidding me right now. And, you know, if I would have did that, there's no telling what would have happened that night. So, yeah, it's, you know, encounters with police, it can be very demeaning overall. Definitely. Well, what was your body's response when your white friend was do, was treating the cop and acting crazy in front of the cop? Were you, was your body panicked? Yes. <laughs> yes. My heart was beating fast. Um, you know, I was sweating a little bit. Uh, the, the, the other guy, uh, that was next to me, he was black as well. And we looked at each other like, what is happening right now? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's this guy getting us into? Yeah. But, uh, you know, he got a little ticket and that was it. So we've, was- we've been told by some friends, we've been given the advice, like, cause both are boys. Um, you know them, but for the listeners, we have a white son and a and a biracial black and white son. And we've been told our white son needs to be careful when he's out in public, you know, when they're older, especially like as teens and, and beyond with Camden, our youngest, who's black, because what Lucas might be doing wouldn't be seen necessarily as threatening, right? But if Cam's with him and they're at a park or they're at a store or whatever, the people's perceptions are going to play right into that. And those quick, dangerous reactions are going to come potentially. And it might be like Lucas also needs to be careful on behalf of Camden. And that we didn't even have any idea that that was. Yeah. Yeah. That is so true. You know, I mean, it, it's it's really amazing, though, you know, how how differently you are treated, you know, just because of skin color, you know. And I really think it's 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 really deeper than than just the color of your skin, really. I, I think it goes to 
power, you know? They say money is the root of all evil, but I disagree with that. Power is definitely the root of all evil, you know? Because when one person or one group of people sees that they have that power over someone else, they would do anything to keep it, you know? And they will pass along that thinking down the line, generation after generation. And that's basically what racism is, you know? I mean, group A has power over group B and they want it to stay that way. That's the way it is. Us understanding power dynamics in the last couple of years has been so helpful to understand these, like how you just said, the two groups, same with um, sexism and misogyny, same with uh, so many things that humans continue to do from the beginning of time, all surrounding power dynamics. Mm -hmm. And until you can understand the reality of power dynamics, you're not going to be able to wrap your brain around this. It's just not going to make sense. You're going to really think, well, we're all equal. We all have the same opportunities. We're all doing great. America's, you know, the land of opportunity for all people. And you're never going to understand that yes, just because there's not physical violence for the most part anymore, subjugating people of color, it doesn't mean those power dynamics are not in place. And I'm so glad you brought that up because that has been so helpful for us to understand. Okay, who has the power in the situation? Okay, now you can see the abuse. Yes, that's exactly right. Mm. I think we could talk forever, <laughs> but it is getting late over there in America. Uh, so I want to be respectful of that. Just thank both of you so much for your time, your story, your insight. It's just been a pleasure to talk with you about this. Not only that, but just see you again, Daniel, and meet you, Jade. It's just been an honor for that, but it's also been an honor to engage with this conversation and hear guys' stories. And thank you for your courage and bravery of, of sharing this story, your stories, um, and sharing your insights and your perspective and your experiences. It's invaluable. And like you guys have said over and over, we need to engage in a story, have a conversation. So thank you for that. I just want to thank you guys so much for the opportunity, um, not only to share our story, but to just you know, be open to the conversation. And I, I really do pray that more people continue to not only listen to your podcast for these continued conversations, but that they take it home with them. Thank you, Jade, so much for your time, your story, your insight. It's been such a treasure. Invaluable. So much. Thank you. Well, we definitely uh, have to uh, do this again because this is very enjoyable, actually. And I definitely want to thank you too. You know, I tell my family and friends about y'all all the time. I really do. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, we are brave or whatnot, but you two are probably braver than we are because, you know, Lauren mentioned to me how, you know, you guys have had issue with some of your family members about your current belief system now. And I know for a fact that that's not easy. So, you know, thank y'all for being y'all. You inspire us, Daniel. Your friendship means so much. And we've made a podcaster out of you. Maybe you and Jade will start your own podcast after this. 
that's a possibility, you know. Hey, 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 I can see her doing that definitely. Oh, I could see that too. You guys would be great. Okay, well, this wraps up our episode and we'll see you on for the next one. While it is a joy to provide our podcast content as a source of life enrichment, please note that information shared is not intended to replace or contradict any professional therapy or medical advice.